Well, good evening. It's sure good to be with you tonight. And after almost nine months of walking through the Old Testament together and being challenged by all that we read and saw and experienced, it does bring me great joy tonight to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. There's something about as you walk through the Old Testament, there is this creating in us this longing for Jesus and this longing for the Messiah. So tonight from the Gospel of Luke, we're going to consider Jesus. So go ahead and turn there to chapter one. I do want to say hello to those who are joining us online on our worship guide. Really glad for you to be with us online. And also before we jump into Luke, I do want to make uh, you aware there are some really, really valuable and helpful resources available to you to continue to grow. Uh, on our news page, you'll find a lot of those. One in particular that I want to point out to you, if you haven't checked out Behind the Message yet, it's a new video version of Behind the Message. My wife did not pay me to say this at all, I promise, but her and Daniel host that. They do a fantastic job, but it, it's an opportunity for you to go indeed behind the message and dive deeper into scripture and Man, I encourage you to check that out. That'll be available every Tuesday morning. And one thing with that is you can uh, send in questions. So there's an email on there, btm at tcbchurch.org. You can send any questions you have about the message or really just life at TCB in general, TCB Church in general, that you want us to tackle during that time. So I encourage you to take advantage of that resource called Behind the Message and check that out this week. All right. Well, you, you're aware if you've been a part of Bible 2020 and joined us back in January of this year, we set our sights on a goal to read through and preach through and study through the Bible in 2020. Now, obviously, little did we know all that was going to be in store for us in 2020. But over the past few months, we together, man, we've covered a lot of ground as we've walked through the Bible. Started all the way back in Genesis at creation and saw the glory of God's good and perfect creation. We saw the fall and we've been looking at all the impacts and the effects of the fall throughout history as we've walked through the pages of the Old Testament. And through all that, obviously, is God's perfect, glorious plan of redemption to redeem fallen mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. We've seen that promise way back in Genesis 12 made to Abraham that there would be a great nation. And from that great nation, there would be a great savior. And really through all the pages and chapters and book of the Old Testament, there's this holding on to, is God going to keep his promise? Is God going to be faithful that this Messiah, this redeemer, this savior that he's promised, is he going to be faithful even as his people are woefully unfaithful. We've walked through all of that. I, months ago, we began with a quote by a man named Josh McDowell, and I thought it'd be good to read that again, just to kind of summarize all that we've saw and read in the Old Testament. So be on the screen, Josh McDowell, who, by the way, was an atheist and set out to disprove Christianity, and on the other end of that became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote this. He said, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. And hopefully you understand that a whole lot more now after we've been reading through Scripture. The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life, kings, peasants, poets, 
herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness. It was written from a dungeon. It was written inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. Yet it, the Bible, speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end. God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No person could have possibly conceived or written such a work and I pray you see that after walking through eight months of walking through the Bible. This is many books, many stories, but ultimately one author about one ultimate subject, redemption of mankind, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Beautiful story of the Bible that I hope you have learned to love more and more. And here's the prayer also that your elders continue to pray. I, I think the decision to walk through the Bible 2020 was probably made back in August of 2018 as our elders came together. And one of the prayers was, we pray you grow to love and adore and worship the God of the Bible more than you did eight months ago when we began this journey. So today, tonight, we turn our attention from the Old Testament where we've been all these months. And now we turn our attention to the new. Now... Paul read just a few minutes earlier from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to go back there, and I want this first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1 to kind of serve as a pivot for us to help us understand a little bit of where we've been and where we're going now as we open up the pages of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews, and this is the New American Standard translation we read earlier from the ESV, but it says this. It says, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now stop right there. I want you to focus on these verses for just a little bit to, to really set the stage for what we're getting ready to look at in the gospel of Luke. The writer of Hebrews here tells you a few really important things. He starts in the past and he says, what has God been doing? And he says, God has been making himself known. God has been speaking. You understand the only way we know anything about God is that God chooses to make himself known to us. We don't find him out. He makes himself known to us. He reveals himself to us. Hebrews says God has been doing that throughout history. To whom has he been making himself known? Well, the writer of Hebrews says he's been making himself known to the fathers, the Abrahams and the Jacobs and the Moseses and all those that we've been studying through the Old Testament. How has he been making himself known? The writer of Hebrews says through the prophets We've looked at the prophets, and he says, through many portions and in many ways. But after all that, the writer of Hebrews comes to a pivot point, and he says, but something is now different. Something is now changing. And he says, but in these last days, he is making himself known. He has made himself known in his son, now, I want you to feel the weight of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here 
and the, uh, here's what I want you to sense and see in this, the privilege that we have of living on this side of the coming of Jesus. In these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, meaning the days we live in now, the days of Messiah, little phrase in these last days is used throughout the New Testament to refer to the period we live in now, post-Messiah. In these last days, he, God, now notice the verb tense, has spoken to us. That is a completed tense in the, in the Greek, which means God has spoken in such a way that it is final and it is complete. It's not various portions. It's not many ways. We're not chasing the next vision. The writer of Hebrews says God has finally and fully spoken to us in the person of his son. God has spoken, revealed himself in the person of his son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through whom also he has made the world Verse 3, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Let that, let that fall on you for just a minute. As we study through the Gospels and we look at the life and the written word making known the living word Jesus, the Bible says that you want to know what God is like. You want a, a revelation of God, the ultimate revelation of God's exact representation is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospels, they said to Jesus, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the father. You've seen the fullness of who God is in the person of the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of the very nature of God. He, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down, work finished, it is finished, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. If you want a few verses to pray through and meditate on, you're not going to do a lot better than Hebrews chapter 1, these verses that we just read. So God has spoken in these past days, but as we open up to the gospel of Luke, his ultimate, most clear, final revelation in this sense is in his son, Jesus, the living word, and we hold in our hand the written word. It is a privilege, unspeakable, brothers and sisters, that we live in the time of history that we now have the son revealed to us. We have the fullness of all that the Old Testament pointed to. The Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, is here. And he's made himself known to us. So we, motivated by grace, empowered by the Spirit, can now behold the living word as we set our eyes on the written word of God that has been entrusted to us. Amen. So let's look and see what the gospel of Luke has to say tonight about this revelation of God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you were able to read through some of the gospel of Luke this week. Uh, if you notice, we didn't cover a lot of Matthew in our reading plan. The reason is we're going to devote all of 2021 to the gospel of Matthew. We're going to go verse by verse through that great gospel and really looking forward to that. But hopefully you've been able to read through the Gospel of Luke this week. It's one of four Gospels, as you know. There are four Gospels that give four different perspectives on the life and the person of who Jesus is. 
Luke, as opposed to the other three gospel writers, is the only Gentile writer. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, along with the book of Acts, as many of you are already aware of. He was a personal companion of Paul. Luke, evidently, was a really, really smart dude. He was a physician. He was a historian. One of the smartest, if you will, most intellectually brilliant men that wrote any part of our scripture was this Dr. Luke, as he was known. And I want to look at the first four verses, and Luke kind of gives us an idea of why he wrote this gospel. And then we're just going to hit a few passages tonight and see what Luke has to say about Jesus the Son before we take the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes. So, would you look with me? Verse 1, chapter 1. Luke, why did you write this gospel? And here's what he says. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Verse three, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Let's stop right there for just a second. Like, who is this guy? Well, Luke and Acts were both written by Luke, particularly for one man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him. His name means lover of God. Evidently, he was a true God follower, true Jesus follower, as best we can tell. And Luke writes these for him, but also obviously for us. And he says, verse 4, that you may have certainty. Certainty. Well, it's all that Luke has compiled here and all that's been put together under the inspiration of the Spirit of God is that Luke says, so that you will have absolutely rock-solid certainty that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. And that your faith set on him is not a matter of feeling or some experience that you had in the past or some vision that happened to you. There's absolute certainty. Luke said, I'm putting together an eyewitness account. I've done my homework. I've studied. I've researched. I've put it all together. Jesus was a real man in real history, in real time. And the evidence supports that. And beyond that, he is the God man who has come. We now have a certain account so that we can have certainty, Luke says, of the things that we, or Theophilus here, have been taught. Now, I'll just tell you, this is one of these sections here that you can just kind of skim over verse 4. But I hope you stop there for just a second. I hope you see the importance of this. Luke is saying from the scriptures... The written word of God telling us about the living God, Jesus himself, that's where our certainty is found. I think it's very important for us in the Bible Belt and many of us that want to hold on to a past experience or some walking down an aisle event or, or whatever that may be. Luke says, if you want rock solid certainty, it is found in the pages of the inspired written word of God. Therefore, your stability and your certainty and your ability to stand firm will be directly proportional to the place you give God's word in your life. A church will be as certain and stable as the place we collectively pursue and give God's 
word in our life and in our ministry and our decision making and all we do. Luke says, these things are written that you may be certain. You may have certainty. In the first two chapters of Luke, if you read through that, you know, Luke compiles some eyewitness accounts and some testimonies, if you will, about this person, Jesus. He gains eyewitness account. There are, uh, there are testimonies from two angels. There are testimonies from two priests. There are testimonies from the parents of John the Baptist, from Mary, the mother of Jesus, from shepherds, and then ultimately Jesus himself speaks in just these first two chapters of Luke. So Luke has put together this account of the life, the person of who is Jesus, so that we would have certainty. See that? So what does he show us? Let me just show you a few things. Chapter 1, verse 5, he begins with the forerunner of Jesus, this guy John the Baptist. Verse 5, we find out who John the Baptist is. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And he had a wife, and her name was Elizabeth. That's the parents of this fellow, John the Baptist. Now, you remember, as Luke lays it out here, Jesus had a forerunner. Jesus had someone that preceded him, that came before him. Why, verse 13, it tells us, but the angel said to him, John's father, he said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and call his name John. Now, what's John for? What's his purpose? Why was he sent? And verse 16, he tells us, and he will turn many of the children of Israel will turn to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he, John, will go before him, the Lord Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What does that mean? You know, there's some phrases here. You just skip right over them. I know that. He says, this, this John is coming in a way reminiscent or in the spirit of Elijah of old. We studied Elijah. He says, come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared to hear him. Now, we read that, and it just kind of goes right past us. But if you're in Jesus' day, and you hear that statement, and you know your Old Testament at all, my, signs start going up in your mind. You're, wait, wait a minute. That's how the Old Testament ends. The prophet Malachi ends the Old Testament. Then there's 400 years of silence, if you will, from the revelation of God. And the Old Testament ends this way. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the father of the children and the hearts of the children of the father. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. You say, what is all that about? That's the way the Old Testament ends in anticipation. So much is written in the Old Testament to create this longing, this waiting, this anticipation. So there was this waiting for this forerunner. And when this forerunner showed up, if you were a Jew and you understood your Old Testament, you know, we have entered the days of Messiah. The promised one is coming. So Luke starts to tie all those things together and connect the dots and say, hey, the forerunner is here. The one who is coming in the spirit of Elijah, his name is John the Baptist. He is coming to go before the Messiah. And in those days, it was intended to say, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is near. There was this massive anticipation for the Messiah who was coming. 
continues on, chapter 1, verse 26, the angel now comes and speaks to Mary. And we get the testimony of the angel. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. You say, oh, that sounds like Christmas. Well, we know the Christmas account, but it's a whole lot more than just a Christmas story. And the virgin's name was Mary, verse 28. And he came and said to her, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. By the way, Mary is not chosen to be the earthly mother of Jesus because of anything in Mary. There's nothing exceptional about Mary. There's an entire religion based on the greatness of Mary, but the Bible says it is the grace of God that he set on Mary. Mary was just like us, fallen in need of a savior. God's grace set apart Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. There's nothing great in Mary. The angel said to her, do not fear, for you have found favor, grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. You guys are probably familiar with the story. We could spend a long time here and just walk through this account. But where I want to focus for just a few minutes is the next two verses, verses 32 and 33. So here's Mary, a teenager at best. She really doesn't understand all that's happening. This angel comes to her. Evidently, Mary was familiar enough with the scriptures of the Old Testament to herself be looking for the Messiah that was going to come, that promised one. And this angel declares to her in verse 32 and verse 33, just look what this angel says. He says, this child, Mary, that you're going to carry, this Jesus, verse 32, he, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Again, if you're a Jew and you hear these phrases, your heart is just leaping within you of all the fulfillment that you've been waiting for of this Messiah. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, the house of Israel forever and his kingdom. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Wow. Just two little verses there. Now, what I want to do is I want to just walk through. I've got three or four big truths here. Now, normally we have a big truth and then a bunch of big ideas that flow out of this. These few verses are so chalked. I've got four big truths that come right out of these verses about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I hope after tonight as we sing and we're here and we're privilege to gather around the word of God. And by the way, it is a privilege and a gift that we get to do this. And I hope we walk out of here and our hearts are aflame with the greatness of Jesus. And I hope we see Jesus as his, it makes himself known through the pages of scripture here. So verse 32, I'm gonna give you four big truths that come out of these verses or three out of these. And then we'll look over in chapter two. But the first one is this big truth. Number one, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. God. Verse 32 says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. If you remember that title in the Old Testament, we saw it a lot in the post-exilic books like 
Habakkuk and Haggai, that phrase, most high, or the most high God, was used over and over, a clear name for the one true God, used throughout the Old Testament in the midst of all the polytheism. There was this statement, the most high God, the one true God. The word son here is used in the mind of a Jew. The idea of a son doesn't necessarily always refer to a physical birth. It can certainly do that, but often it means the idea to call someone a son in Jewish thought was to say they bear the same qualities as, or they have the exact same characteristics of, or they have the same privileges as, or they are the same as. So for Jesus to be called here the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, was like there's another place in the Gospel of John that James and John are called the sons of thunder, meaning their characteristics were just like thunder. It was to say something about who they were. This is to say that Jesus has absolute equality with God. By the way, in the mind of a Jew, this is a scandalous statement if it were not true. That one has come forth from God who is in himself God himself. How can that be? He is the son of God, characteristics of God, absolute equality with God. This is a mind-boggling statement to a Jew. And man, you got to think it was a mind-boggling statement to Mary to hear this about the child that she's going to be carrying in her womb. He is the son of the most high, declaring that this Jesus is the son of the most high God, his equality with God. Now, Interesting, as you read through the New Testament, and we continue to do that in the coming months, you'll see, especially in the Gospels, the demons knew this to be true. In Mark chapter 5 or 7, it's not going to be on the screen, there was an episode where Jesus shows up on the scene and the demons themselves cry out and they refer to Jesus as, they say, what, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? The, the fallen angels who had understanding into the spirit realm that humans don't, they knew exactly who Jesus was, the son of the most high God. As you go on through the gospels, the self-righteous religious Pharisees were enraged at the idea that Jesus could be the son of God. You see this throughout the gospels, particularly in the gospel of Mark, Chapter 14, you don't have to turn there. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, in the conversation when Jesus is being placed on trial and to be placed, to be crucified, again, the high priest asked him and said, are you the Christ, the son of the most high or the son of the blessed? Is that true? Jesus says, verse 62, I am, and you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven fully embracing who he was as God in the flesh and this religious leader who knew the Old Testament scriptures better than you and I said, you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Wow. Point is, every human being will have to make that type of decision about who Jesus Christ is. He leaves you no room to be neutral. He declares himself to be God in the flesh, the God man. He clearly claims that as a reality, and we have no room for neutrality. 
Those religious who were so confident in their own self-righteousness were enraged that they would need a savior, certainly a God-man to walk among them. Certainly this one Jesus who was born in a manger. So truth number one, big truth number one is this. Jesus is the son of God. Number two, Luke for our faith and the certainty of our faith says this. Big truth number two, Jesus is the son of David. Now what does that mean? Verse 32 again, he says, he, Jesus, will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David. Again, if you're a Jew and you hear that in the mind of a Jew, there is no greater earthly king than King David. We read about David's reign in the Old Testament. We spent weeks there in the idea that he was the greatest earthly king that ever reigned over Israel. Israel reached the heights of its uh, prestige, if you will, under his leadership. Kings that followed David were compared to David, but the Bible clearly shows us David was a fallen, broken dude, just like you and me, right? We know that. And to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read this months ago, a promise was made to King David, and here it is. It says this, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, there was a promise that one was going to come from the very line of David that would be infinitely greater than David. A king who would be that promised king. And as we walk through all of these highs and lows of all these kings that we walk through in Israel, we studied the kings and all their brokenness and all their fallenness. We know it was none of those kings, but it was this king who was promised, this Jesus who came, who is the son of David, the descendant of David. The prophets look forward to this descendant of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This angel declares to Mary, this baby is the promised seed of David, the messianic hope that we have been longing for. So again, Mary hears this, and she says, this child I'm carrying is is of God. He's the son of the most high. And at the same time, he's the son of David. He's a human. He's a descendant of David. How can that all be in one person? And he's not finished. The passage continues. Verse 33. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of David. Number three, quickly. Jesus is the king of Israel who will reign forever. Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That is the same as saying Israel. Forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jacob, grandson, Israel. We studied through the reigns of the endless kings of Israel and Judah. Every reign of every king ended throughout the Old Testament as Israel and Judah were confronted with various kings and kingdoms, the Assyrians, the Persians. There's a continued drumbeat throughout the Old Testament. I hope you caught it because it builds up to right here. Every earthly kingdom that was established and built and that we saw in the Old Testament ended. All of them. Every earthly kingdom and reign will always end. 
But yet throughout the Old Testament, there was this constant promise that there is a king coming one day whose kingdom will never end. And we see that, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We saw it primarily when the exiles were in Babylon under this oppressive king, Nebuchadnezzar. And that kingdom looked like it was going to last forever, and it didn't. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar himself says this. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures through generation after generation after generation. Who is this one coming? And the angel says to Mary, it is the baby you're carrying in your womb. The king whose kingdom will reign forever is here. Wow. That's the king that we know. And that's the king we worship. And that's the king that we have a relationship with and the king whose spirit lives within us. He is the son of the most high. He is the promised son of David. He is the king whose kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Verse 38 says, and Mary, behold, she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And she speaks to the angel and the angel departed. Now, I want us to see one last small thing that Luke declares to be true about Jesus right here. And I want you to see that in chapter 2. So flip on up chapter 2, and we're going to be in around verse 8. Just a few verses. I'll give you one more big truth, and then we're going to move into time of the Lord's table. So chapter 1, he declares this Jesus is the Son of the Most High. This Jesus is the promised Messiah, this King whose kingdom will be forever and ever. And then... You come to chapter 2, verse 8. I got to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the whole Christmas story is this part here, the testimony of these shepherds. So he gains the testimony from the shepherds, and there is declared something to them that I want us to camp out on just for a few minutes tonight before we end. Chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus has been born. Jesus and his parents, Mary and Joseph, have made their way there to Bethlehem. Christ child has been born. And then we pick it up in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Very familiar verses, right? So hang with me. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with fear. Why were they afraid? Well, there are a lot of reasons they were afraid. One was because of the magnitude and the magnificence of angels. I mean, again, angels are not fluffy little cotton ball guys, right? They're great, powerful beings. They appear to these angels out in the field at night. Another reason they were fearful is because they were wicked, bad dudes. Shepherds in that day were known to be the criminal class. They were the undeserving. They were the unworthy. And the picture of grace that I love here is the picture of who... On earth did the angel announce and go first to announce that the Messiah is here? Royalty? Nope. The temple? Nope. The priests? Nope. These unworthy, undeserving shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Aren't you glad? Because I got a whole lot more in common with those shepherds than I do with those who are deserving of anything. 
So this angel appears to them, verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I got good news for you. I got good news for you of great joy that'll be to all people. Verse 11, and here's the verse I want you to see. We'll finish here. For unto you, and you got to think the shepherd's like, us? This, this one you're telling us about is for us? We're just lowly shepherds, man. You don't know what we've done. You don't know our past. No, no, no. Angel says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. And look at the description here of Jesus, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now look at these little words here for just a second. This is going to lead us into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. Here's your big truth. Number four is this. Jesus is Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ here means Messiah. Again, it's that word throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible of this one that was promised so long ago. This one that was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden to Adam as one who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. Thousands of years ago, this one was promised, this Messiah. The one that was promised to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to the prophets. This Messiah, this Christ, same word, same meaning. The one we've been waiting for is here. The word Lord literally could be translated master. He is our master. He is Lord. But it could also be used here as the translation of the Hebrew covenant name God, Yahweh, carried over from the Hebrew to be saying this covenant-keeping God that has kept his covenant throughout history has now taken on flesh and is walking among us. And it doesn't stop there. He says, and why? Because he's come as Savior, the holy, righteous, sovereign judge of all the earth will give his life, bearing the sins of all who will believe so that we can be redeemed. Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And he is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy to be made known to the ends of the earth as the light of the Gentiles, the glory of his people Israel. So I'm going to ask the team to come on up and just to begin to play. And I'm going to close by just reading what these shepherds do. You can just follow along. They, how do they respond? These, these nobodies, <laughs> these outcasts, these lowest of the low social class were come and told the best news ever. And how did they respond? Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, I can imagine what that conversation was like. Can you imagine? Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They couldn't get over the fact that God had made it known to them. May we never get over the fact that God has made it known to you and to me. Because if we see ourselves as deserving of the gospel and somehow deserving of the message that I've even read to us tonight and it becomes callous and it becomes just old news, we're somehow deserving of that, we'll lose the wonder that these shepherds have. Come, let us tell of this that has been made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. They told them all that the angels had said to them. The first evangelists, by the way, were these unworthy shepherds making Jesus known. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned. They left Bethlehem. They went back to their fields. But watch this. After they came face to face with Jesus, they went back changed. They went back declaring what had been told to them. Verse 20 says, they went back and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to I want us to walk away from here tonight like these shepherds realizing we don't even deserve to hear this message. I want us to walk away overwhelmed that this gospel has come to us and like those shepherds be reminded that we have been changed undeservingly. Nothing in me, nothing in us. And we recognize he is worthy of our praise and our worship and he, this son of the most high, this promised Messiah, Savior, Lord, King, is worthy to be made known to the ends of the earth. And it's us, undeserving shepherds, who get to go tell and make him known. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I'm going to pray. And we're going to continue with a time of response. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that our faith has greater certainty. Lord, I pray our hearts are aflame with the glory of God made known in the face of Christ Jesus. Jesus, help us to, to love you more. To be overwhelmed with your greatness and your magnitude and your glory and your humility. All that you are and overwhelmed that this has been made known to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.